At the intersection of true crime and real estate, you'll find Crime Estate. I'm Heather. And my name is Elena. As real estate agents and true crime junkies, we view crimes through a different lens. So walk through the door of some of the most notorious true crimes with us and discover how sometimes the scene of the crime has its own story to tell. Hey, ladies, we're back. Hi. How's it going? It's good. It has been a crazy week. Right. Well, and we're recording on a Sunday instead of a Friday, and you were commenting how different our moods are on Sundays versus Fridays. Yeah. The vibe is very different. We are a little bit exhausted today, but we're going to power through for you guys for sure. I feel like I'm in a bad mood. I hate that. Like I'm off my game. I feel like I'm in a mood. So, well, we're going to talk about some crime. So I'm sure that's going to be uplifting. (laughs) That'll definitely help. (laughs) Well, this was a big week here in Dallas. Um, We had some really severe weather and it coincided with the verdict of the Murdoch trials. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know about you guys, but I was having to decide, do I watch the news to see if I need to take shelter or do I watch the verdict? And it ended up that I got multiple devices out and watched both oh, at the same hilarious. time. that's hilarious. That's hilarious. I was not in that boat. I was news or Mavs game was, oh. was our dilemma at the house. I know Melanie was all about the trial. That's how Heather knew about it. I texted her and to let her know that the verdict was out. Yeah, I was in Whole Foods and the checkout line and I had subscribed to Emily D. Baker, the, the YouTuber. You guys are besties now. I, I, yeah, she, she's my friend. Um, and so she texted me, you know, personally to let me know that the verdict had, had come. <laughs> and so my very next thing was to text Heather and go, the verdict is out. And so we're running home. My husband was with me and he's also enthralled. And so we're watching on my phone as the the discussion starts. And then we get home and the uh, storm sirens are going off, blaring in our house. And so, yeah, we were exactly the same way. We're trying to figure out what's going on with the storms, but we're really wanting to watch court TV and we weren't sure where to look. Yeah. And, you know, a little bit of apologies in advance. We're definitely recording a few weeks ahead here. So by the time you guys hear this, you'll be like, yeah, that's old news. Old but news. we decided it's really not because I think this is the trial of the century. Yeah. What do y'all think? Uh, definitely is the biggest trial that has involved me in a long, long time. Did you spend Friday looking for commentary on the verdict? I did watch a lot of it. I, I don't know. I feel very anticlimactic about it. Um, and I don't think I was as happy as I thought I was going to be. And I think it's maybe just because at the end of the day, th- there was definitely questions about the investigation. There was serious discrepancies. But I think I don't... I, how do you feel overjoyed about uh, mm-hmm. a mother and a son dying? And even if he, the husband was the one to do it, I don't really like admitting the fact that, you know, the husband's going to do it. So I think I realized I have a lot of mixed feelings about it all. I think that's Mm -hmm. fair. And, you know, we've brought up before that we're all boy moms here. I could not help feeling for, is it Buster? Yes. Buster. I mean, I saw him during the sentencing sitting there and just thinking, you know, he's lost his whole family at this point. And that was really hard for me. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree. The whole thing was... um, just really sad. I mean, interesting, fascinating, but also just kind of really sad. Mm -hmm. Well, on a lighter note, you guys did something fun this week. I couldn't go. I had a sick kiddo, but you all had a fun little event you attended this week. Yeah, it was an unusual Tuesday night. We got out of the house and we went to the Dallas Museum of Art 
and watched. You pulled you pulled a name up. Yeah, it was very highbrow. Thank you, yeah. and, and thank you for getting us tickets. Yeah, um, we went to a book reading for Rebecca Mackay. I might butcher her last name, so apologies. Oh, that sounds right. Yeah. So she uh, is an award winning Pulitzer Prize nominee author. Um, Youngish, like I would say, I like around my age. Uh, yeah, she, that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And she has a new book out called I Have Some Questions for You, which is right up our alley. Um, I mean, it's very literary, um, which we are literary, obviously. but <laughs> obviously, but it is about an, um, I think it's about an author who comes back to lecture at her previous boarding school about the topics of film and podcasting. And she is very interested in true mm -hmm. crime and gets pulled and sucked into investigating a, um, a death that had occurred at the boarding school when she had been there. Yeah. And so, yeah, so we're doing our informal book club um, about it. But uh, yeah, that was really interesting and weirdly timely. It was. Uh, so uh, Yeah, I thought it was really interesting and her story is interesting too that she went to a boarding school in Chicago and now she's back at that boarding school as a married woman because her husband in real life were, in real yeah. life in real life the author now works at that same boarding school so she is she lives where she went to high school so that's yeah interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. she, yeah, she she was kind of funny about how it Sounds kind of had come full circle. And her husband, I think, is some faculty at the school mm -hmm. and how she's never really gotten away from it. Right, right. But yeah, we'll all read it and update. Yeah, yeah that'll uh, be fun. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. We'll just add one more thing to our to-do list. Why not? But I Why love not? to read, so that sounds great. Yeah, we got spring break coming up soon. You know, it, it always cracks me up that in Texas, spring break, it's really kind of winter time still. Um, although it might feel like spring break today, it feels uh, Ladies, 75 right. and beautiful outside. Oh, man. It's really hard not to be doing this outside with a cocktail yeah. right now, but a little bit windy. So maybe we'll feel, figure out how to record outside yeah. in the future. We'll go out there later. All right. Well, you know, we have mentioned in previous episodes that we all share a love and passion for old homes. And today's episode takes us to one of Dallas's oldest properties, a home located in the Swiss Avenue Historic District that was so iconic that it was known as the Queen of Swiss Avenue. I'm excited to be in Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, a little bit of a hometown history yes. lesson here. Now, Actually, let me do give you just like a one-minute history mm -hmm. lesson. Uh, don't turn off your podcast. Keep listening. So Dallas officially became a town in 1856, but it wasn't until the railroads arrived in the early 1870s that Dallas really started becoming a hub for manufacturing and trading. And then fast forward another 20 years or so, and commerce is thriving, and you start to see banks and other businesses setting up more permanent locations in Dallas. And it really wasn't unusual to find these companies offering the perk of building a home for their upper echelon management to get them to move to Dallas. And so a very forward-thinking businessman from a prominent Dallas family had an idea for what we would probably today call a master-planned community. The first suburb, although by today's standards, this is very much an inner, mm -hmm. inner city neighborhood, um, his vision consisted of a neighborhood in close proximity to downtown Dallas where only the finest homes could be built. The deed restrictions stipulated the homes in what he named Munger Place had to be at least two stories in height. Their exteriors had to be constructed of brick or masonry, and they were not permitted to face a side street. Additionally, each residence had to cost at least $10,000 to build. 
And in today's dollars, that's $300,000. You cannot, you absolutely could not build one of these houses on Swiss Avenue today for $300,000, but that's what it equates to today. And making the neighborhood of Munger Place even more exclusive, a trolley line was installed so that residents with private rail cars could board the trolley at their own back door and ride it around town. Now, as you might imagine, this neighborhood was very appealing to the Dallas elite. Of those who originally built in the Munger Place neighborhood, there are three families who you should all recognize. There was Theodore and Stanley Marcus, Side note, originally from the Great Commonwealth of Kentucky. Oh my. Look, I'll get a little plug in there. <laughs> and their sister, Carrie Marcus Neiman, who together, along with Carrie's husband, went on to found the mecca of all Dallas shopping, Neiman Marcus. So today's Swiss Avenue is uh, the city's first historic district. And as of 1973, it is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And Melanie, you are very familiar with this part of town. Yeah, I can probably add a lot here as I actually live in Munger Place. Today, for um, folks here in Dallas, we've kind of divided it into two sections. There's several uh, historic neighborhoods in Dallas. And what is we're going to be talking about today is really kind of colloquially named Swiss Avenue. But historically, it was... Um, Munger Place, the larger name, because um, I think Robert Munger was the one who had developed it, and he created the area of Swiss Avenue, and then the very nearby neighborhood, which I live in, which is now today just called Munger Place, and Swiss Avenue was sort of the the elite mansions of that era, um, very beautiful, always have been kept up today, um, and then Munger Place, um, which is a few blocks away where I live nowadays, at was very nice. It was sort of called the doctors and lawyers of that time period's homes. And it did go into disrepair between the 60s and probably all the way up into the 90s. We had some urban pioneers in the 80s had started to renovate these homes again. And now it I mean, I'm biased, but it's very beautiful. It's been mostly all renovated up to today's standards, but it was um, split into boarding houses. So you see in a lot of these houses today, different walls that have been moved around because like apparently at one time, my house was even two different um, houses. Some of the houses were split up into four or five different like little mini apartments for um, boarders. But today they've all been kind of put back together. But yeah, no, this is a really kind of cool neighborhood. My street has the old trail, uh, the trolley tracks. And so recently we're, we're, we've been working as a neighborhood to put in some statues to kind of um, signify the historic uh, significance of the neighborhood as well as to slow down um, uh, drivers who are driving down some <laughs> driving of our streets. Faster than yeah, a trolley. Exactly. And so as they've been doing the renovating and putting kind of these um, curbs up in order to slow them, they actually opened up and you could see the trolley tracks. The trolley tracks are still there um, on Colette Avenue where they had gone down Swiss and then gone down Colette. And you could still see kind of the trolley tracks that have been um, paved over all these years later. That. That's so, so cool. cool. Yeah. Well, and you were telling me, and I didn't realize this, but apparently a lot of the homes on Swiss Avenue have been used over the years in shows or movies mm-hmm. that I think everybody would recognize. Well, Dallas. Um, <laughs> there's def- lots of different scenes from Dallas and some of the interior shots of the Ewing houses were all filmed um, on Swiss Avenue, which is kind of funny because when you watch 
um, Dallas, you generally think that it was out way out in the countryside. And I will say South Fork Ranch today is out there. I mean, it's kind of being swallowed by suburbia, but it is outside the city. But a lot of the scenes of the different, especially the interior shots were all filmed on Swiss Avenue. It's not uncommon on any day for um, uh there are to be signs in my neighborhood for different um, TV shows that are being filmed. Lots of commercials are being shot in the neighborhood. And you see the crews and the trucks all blocking the streets and, pe- and people having uh, the craft, you know, the food uh, trucks in there. So it is kind of fun to see all that because I guess it is a very different look and feel for some of these ur- um, in an urban area to have all these restored homes. Absolutely. And it's in this premier neighborhood that we find Mary Ellen Benson living in her home at 4949 Swiss Avenue. And that is the story we're going to tell you today. Now, Mary Ellen lived a fascinating life. When she was 14 years old, she was selected to be the Spirit of Texas in a pageant at the State Fair of Texas. And she held numerous other beauty titles, including Miss Liberty for the 1933 State Fair and the queen of sports for the opening of baseball season that year. You said you weren't going to talk about beauty queens anymore. I know. And I didn't plan to. And then this just came up in her history. <laughs> it's so okay. Not we'll blame Mary Ellen okay. for that. Okay. Now, Life Magazine named her as their dream girl. And she was also used as the statue model for the Art Deco statues of a woman built at Dallas's Fair Park for the 1936 Centennial Exposition. Wow. And if you visit the State Fair of Texas today, you can still see those statues. So cool. Yeah. So look for those the next time we're at the State Fair. In addition to being a beauty pageant winner, she was also a talented piano player and runway model. She graced the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine, and she played piano for Cole Porter at a party he threw at the Waldorf Astoria, and then later played for President Harry S. Truman at the Adolphus Hotel in Dallas. And playing the piano became something she was known for, and she is said to have entertained guests by playing the piano for the rest Mm -hmm. of her life. Now, Mary Ellen marries Christian Benston in 1946 when she is 30 years old after a brief and unsuccessful stint in New York trying to make it as a model. It seems older for 1946, 30 years old. It does. I And also so adventurous of her to leave her right. hometown and Absolutely. go to New York. Yeah. He was a Danish immigrant with an elegant voice and vague claims of being a baron and an adventurer. Now, Mary Ellen and Christian live with Mary Ellen's parents. And in 1949, when Mary Ellen is 33 years old, she and her mother find an advertisement for a home which boasted a mansion for the price of a cottage. Hmm. Now, this home really wasn't something they could afford. So Mary Ellen's sister, Anne McClamrock, paid the $7,500 down payment for the house at 4949 Swiss Avenue. The home needed repairs even at that time, so the family was able to purchase the property for $17,500. Right? Well, and it made me think about our last Mm -hmm. episode, I think it was our last episode, Mm -hmm. maybe one or two ago, where we talked about how 50% down Mm -hmm. used to be the standard for a down payment, and that's, you know, pretty close here. Right, yeah. Now, family lore has it that Mary Ellen claimed the master bedroom, even though it was actually her parents buying the house. And that should really tell you a lot about her. According to her sister, she always got her way, even going so far as to invite herself to tag along on her sister's honeymoon because she had never been to Cuba. Wow. So some resentment there? I I mean, maybe a little bit. But apparently, according to her sister, it wasn't that she was 
difficult. It was just that she had this like personality that was magnetic mm-hmm. and vivacious. And so you just couldn't really tell her no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have a sister. You mm-hmm. all both I have, have sisters. Sister. Would yeah. you invite yourself on your sister's honeymoon? No. <laughs> or anybody's honeymoon? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not really something you want to do. Once she moved into that master bedroom in 1949, she lived the rest of her life in the house at 4949 Swiss Avenue. So let's talk about this house for a minute. And really, house probably isn't the right word. It's a mansion. Um, It was built in 1917, and it was one of the grandest homes in Dallas at the time with three stories and over 7,000 square feet of yellow brick and a tile-rimmed veranda. Now, we have photos of this house up on our website and social, so you all have to go check it out. It's stunning. There were seven fireplaces and a trio of crystal chandeliers, and everyone who ever stepped foot in the house always mentioned the grand sweeping staircase made of hand-rubbed mahogany. Sounds gorgeous. Sounds gorgeous. Beyond that, the home was famous for a pair of baby grand pianos and a mirror, quote, the size of Texas. Now, in reality, this mirror was actually larger than a garage door. So Very large. So it's with this sweeping staircase, this grand mirror, and a set of baby grand pianos that Mary Ellen sort of sets the stage. And her friends noted that she loved to come walking down the staircase like a 1940s movie queen. A friend of Mary Ellen's, B. Grayson, is quoted as saying that the house was like magic and the Benstons lived in a sort of never-never world. Mary Ellen's son-in-law said that visiting his in-laws was like stepping into a surreal play with the house as a main character and Mrs. Benson as the star. Benson's husband died in 1985 and her daughter grew up and moved away. The house began to fall into disrepair and Mary Ellen, who was living on $800 a month, couldn't afford to fix the house when repairs were needed. Plaster began falling from the walls. A post was installed on the front porch to keep it from collapsing. And unable to afford a washing machine, she took her clothes to her daughter's home to be laundered. Man, that's Mm. heartbreaking. It is. Now, as time progresses and Mary Ellen's health begins to deteriorate, her daughter, Frances Ann, desperately wanted her mom to move from this fading mansion. But Mary Ellen would not hear of it. Her home was her identity, and she often told people that she was the woman of 4949 Swiss Avenue. And she claimed and told her daughter that she would only leave the house feet first. Mm. A friend of Mary Ellen's, Jeff Martin, said that the place was dusty and dirty, but she just sort of pretended that she didn't notice. Now, at some point, Frances Ann, Mary Ellen's daughter, remarries and moves away from Texas. However, her ex-husband, who remained close with Frances Ann and her family, would take groceries to Mary Ellen once a week. And he spent some time visiting with her and checking on her on behalf of his ex-wife. It's nice. It's really nice. Mm -hmm. What a gem of a guy. Um, Now let's fast forward to the mid-90s. The house and Mary Ellen are both declining at this point. And Mary Ellen is befriended by two local antique dealers, Mark McKay and Justin Burgess. In an interview with the Dallas Morning News in the late 90s, which highlighted his antiques business, Mark is quoted as saying, let's face it, Dallas is the glitzy, glamorous hotspot of Texas. Everyone here wants to put on a show, be a star, and feel larger than life. I think that's still a pretty accurate description. It is. I agree. Yeah. Now, over the course of the next 10 years, Mary Ellen becomes close with Mark and Justin, who often took her out to eat and spent time at her house, and she started to... to them as the boys. Sweet. That's sweet. 
And by early 2000, her health had deteriorated enough that she was really dependent on the kindness of other people. Fun fact for all of you homeowners out there, uh, you really can't let your house fall into serious disrepair. It's, uh, the city doesn't like right. it. And in fact, the city of Dallas began uh, sending building inspectors out and you know, really getting on to Mary Ellen about um, fixing things up and, and keeping them in compliance with code uh, requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they had a carriage house in the backyard and that had burned in 1960 after they had rented it out and their renter started a fire and they had never fixed the carriage house. So Ooh, we're going on yikes. 40 years Crazy. here of this burned down carriage house that they had never taken and, care of. And not to interrupt, but I saw, I mean, I lived at my house when that house, uh, when the carriage house was in disrepair. I think we had moved in a couple of years before to our house. And so we're a few blocks away and would go on walks and you could see it. And it just seemed as such an outlier compared to the general, that street, mm-hmm. the general street of the neighborhood. Um, but maybe you want to explain what a carriage house is because it, that oh. may be not as well known for some of our listeners. Oh, that's a great, that's a great commentary, Melanie. So, you know, a carriage house is what I think today we would call a detached garage, perhaps, um, often held your carriage or your carriages. And in most situations would have some sort of living quarters above it for the caretaker Mm -hmm. who would either be your driver perhaps, or, you know, a handyman around the house. So typically carriage houses are two stories with the quote unquote garage section on the bottom and living quarters above. Yeah. Sometimes I also hear it called as quarters. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that would be kind of like the maybe the servant quarters of that era. Uh, a lot of them nowadays are either in-law suites or um, where people work from home. If they, You know, like they use it as a, an office because it's kind of detached, but, um, or, you know, as a guest quarters when fr- friends and family come to visit them. Absolutely. Now, by 2001, neighbors... Not Melanie, but other neighbors were complaining. Well, we don't know. She never verified. Was it you? <laughs> no, okay. I wasn't there into that. We didn't move into the area until I think 2010. Oh, right. But okay. it was still. Yeah. <laughs> so the neighbors started complaining in 2001, <laughs> Melanie. So it had been a it had been a longstanding issue. And they were complaining about the house and this bamboo jungle that was growing in the bag- backyard, which they said was really large enough to shelter mm-hmm. vagrants. So there was a security concern mm-hmm. as well. And it should be noted that these neighborhoods are beautiful, historic neighborhoods. But yeah, over the last 40 years, there has been a lot of lower income housing, small commercial businesses um, that have popped up in this area. I mean, it is very close to downtown. And with a lot of the flight to the suburbs, um, as people became more well off, they started moving farther afield. And so that's why in my particular neighborhood, uh, for a while, it became kind of a lot of boarding houses. Swiss Avenue always kind of kept its own identity, but it definitely went, even the, even Swiss Avenue went through its rough time periods before now and, and, you know, kind of a second heyday of people moving closer back into the city, you know, only a couple miles from downtown and we're near all the uh, restaurants and museums, et cetera. But yeah, there's definitely a time period where these beautiful historic mansions are kind of surrounded on the streets, you know, right north and south of it by a different demographic. And there was definitely a lot of homeless people that live in the general area that I could I could absolutely picture some of the issues on Swiss Avenue. 
Yeah. And so, you know, it's after these kinds of concerns from neighbors and several years of code violations that the city of Dallas started preparing for a hearing on the property. Now, if you'll remember, Mary Ellen's sister actually made the down payment on this house originally. And so she's a part owner in this property despite not living there. And so when the city of Dallas starts sending out these notices, one arrives at her house as well. And the city was about to levy thousands of dollars in fines, which really neither Mary Ellen or her sister could afford. So she was, you know, really concerned about this situation. And it's around this time that Anne, the sister, gets a call from Mark McKay, one of the boys who has befriended Mary Ellen. And he wants to buy her interest in 4949 Swiss. Now she puts him off telling him that he couldn't afford it. And in fact, Anne was really ready to sell the house um, so that she could live comfortably in her final years. At this point, she's about 80. She's been taking care of a, you know, a son that had you know, some severe kind of medical mm. issues. And so she would like to be able to sell the house and live comfortably in her final years, but she did not have any desire to sell her interest to Mark Bacay. She had never liked him. And I applaud her on principle for that. Right. I wouldn't sell my house to somebody I didn't like either. Mm-hmm. I love it too mm-hmm. much. Now, by 2002, the city of Dallas was very serious about making sure the house was repaired. And they sent a certified letter to the house, which Mark McKay signs for. Justin, the second of the two antique dealers, and Mark's on-again, off-again boyfriend, writes back to the city stating that he is the project manager for the renovations at 4949 Swiss, and he just needs the code enforcement hearing to be delayed a little bit. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So the city agrees, but no renovations follow. And another month passes, and the city sends yet another certified letter to the house, which Justin signs for. On the same day, Mary Ellen signs a typed document that says that she wants Mr. McKay to be her guardian if she ever needs one. Her second choice in guardians was Justin Burgess. And third, her daughter's ex-husband and her former son-in-law, Art Merzatuni. If I butchered that, Art, I really appreciate it because I think you're a really nice guy. Later that year, Mary Ellen asked Art to look at the boys' plans for her house, which were written on a wadded-up napkin. Essentially, in exchange for helping her repair the house, they would get a share of the mansion and be able to move in. This was obviously concerning to Art. He didn't like what little he had seen of Mark and Justin anyway, and he told Mary Ellen that she should tell them not to come around anymore. Now, one Friday in November of 2002, Art stops by 4949 Swiss to deliver groceries and check on Mary Ellen like he does every week. But he said this visit was different. Typically, Mary Ellen would be her boisterous self and vibrant self. She would tell stories and try to entertain him and, you know, stall him in order to get him to stay as long as possible. But on this visit, she asked him to take a copy of her new will with him, one that left everything to her daughter and her grandchildren. Now, this made Mark McKay furious, and he told a mutual friend, Mr. Martin, that they had invested 12 years into bringing her food and liquor, and he was not going to invest any more time and energy into her unless he was sure he was going to get the house. Yikes. Isn't that terrifying? Yes. So immediately after this conversation, Mr. Martin calls Mary Ellen, and he says, look, I don't care if Mark shows up with a gun. Do not sign anything he puts in front of you. 
And she replies to him. I love this quote. She says, darling, I don't owe them a damned thing. Why do they keep saying I owe them? And then she goes on to tell him that they actually scare her a little bit. I know. I I feel so bad for her. Now, all of this sets the stage for what happens approximately two years later in January of 2005. Mary Ellen takes a serious fall down the front steps at 4949 Swiss and ends up in the hospital for over a week. At this time, the doctors diagnose her with dementia and believing that she may just be too impaired to care for herself and too unsteady to walk on her own, they suggest that she goes to a temporary rehab facility. Now, by this time, Mary Ellen's daughter, Frances Ann, has moved back to Texas because she was really worried that her mother could no longer live safely in that unair-conditioned and unheated house. And she had purchased a house in Plano, which is a Dallas suburb, and she was really hoping that she could convince her mother to move in with her into this house in Plano. So she tells the hospital, look, I'm going to go spend the day looking for a good rehab facility for mom, um, and I'm going to look for something close to where I'm living so that maybe once we get her there, it's a quick move into our house Mm -hmm. afterwards. Now, while Frances Ann is away from the hospital that day looking at facilities for her mom, Mark McKay arrives and he tells Mary Ellen that she has a choice. She can either accept their offer of help and return to her beloved mansion, or she can spend the rest of her life confined to a rubber cubicle. It's evil. It is so evil and manipulative, right? Right. Yeah. So he convinces Mary Ellen to name him as her guardian, but Frances Ann seeing what's going on here, had really already put wheels in motion with the courts, stating that her mother was in danger of being taken advantage of by Mark and Justin, and Frances Ann needed to be her temporary guardian. So all of this goes to the courts, and the judges, the judge agreed that really Frances Ann should be her guardian and said that Mary Ellen was to stay in the nursing home for at least 10 days of inpatient rehab and that no one was allowed to visit her without the court's permission. That's good. That's good, right? Now, this occurs on January 31st, 2005. But unbeknownst to the judge, Mary Ellen had actually checked out of the facility earlier that afternoon. And the lawyer that's representing Mark and Justin in this court proceeding doesn't tell the judge this, or he doesn't tell her that she's back on her way to 4949 Swiss. When Frances Ann discovers this, she's obviously furious, and her lawyer pleads with the judge to make the two men return Mrs. Benson to the nursing home. But at this point, the judge is just impatient with the whole thing, and he tells everybody to move on, and he's like, just let her stay there. That's really messed up. I was really glad about this judge. From the time Mark and Justin take over as guardians for Mary Ellen, she is watched around the clock. They hired a sitter, which sounds good at first glance, but this was actually someone they met in a grocery store parking lot who was a high school dropout with a prison record. This person served more as a prison guard against Frances Ann than a caretaker for Mary Ellen. On February 22nd, not even a month after she was released from the hospital, Mary Ann suffers a major stroke and an ambulance came to take her back to Baylor Hospital. At that time, she told the paramedics, don't let them take me from my house. That's so sad. I know. And I, you know, I do think there is some grace and dignity to aging and dying at mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. This was, was just not a good setup, right? Like she didn't have air or heat. Right. You she know, that's not ideal. Back. She didn't for, want to do that. A lot of people want to go back to their homes to live out their last days and 
She didn't want to. No, she did want she to. She did. Don't let she them did take. Want, oh, take me from my home. Yes. Because oh. remember, she said she was leaving their feet first. I heard it the she other way. She wanted to stay. Mm. Yes. Now, once back at the hospital, Mark McKay showed the doctors and staff his power of attorney and informed them that no one was to receive information on her condition and that her daughter was not to be informed of the patient's admission. That made me furious. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can't even imagine somebody not calling me if my right. mom's in Oh my the gosh, right. Now, a CT scan showed a brain hemorrhage bigger than a chicken egg in Mary Ellen's right frontal lobe. And daughter... And doctors gave her morphine and anti-seizure medication. And it's with Mary Ellen in this condition, having dementia, suffering a stroke with a brain hemorrhage, that Mary Ellen saw Mark and Justin's lawyer alone and asked him for a new will. He asked her, do you want Francis Ann to have any of your money? And she replied, no. He then asked her, do you want Francis to have your house at Swiss Avenue? To which she replied, I want it for myself. He clarifies and asks, who should have your mansion? To which she again tells him that she wants to keep it for herself. Finally, he asks her who should get the house if she dies, to which she says, the boys, and points to Justin and Mark, who are standing at the end of her bed. Mm. Now, the boys and the lawyer got all of this on a video in an effort to make sure that this will was valid and that they would indeed get the mansion at 4949 Swiss when Mary Ellen died. Now, remember that Justin and Mark had not told Frances Ann, her daughter, that she was in the hospital. And she only finds this out after a probate court investigator arrives at the house to find it vacant. It's at 1 a.m. on March 2nd that Mary Ellen dies at Baylor Hospital with Mark McKay by her side. At 8.04 the next morning, less than seven hours later, and only four minutes after the clerk's office opened for business, the men file Mary Ellen's new will. The hospital lawyer calls Francis Ann's lawyer around 9 a.m. that morning, and by noon, Francis Ann had also filed a competing will with the clerk's office, and she immediately changed the locks at 4949 Swiss. What ensues is a legal battle for the ages. Motion after motion is filed, first for access or rights to Mary Ellen's body and then to the house itself, And ultimately, both Francis Ann and the boys are locked out of 4949 Swiss while the legal proceedings play out. So, what happens to this mansion in disrepair? In 2012, Mark McKay went on trial for attempted theft and elder abuse. He was sentenced to 30 days in prison, four years probation, and a $1,000 fine. One of the key pieces of evidence in the case was a previous relationship that Mark developed with an elderly couple, Jack and Irene Farrington, in which he had a will signed by Mr. Farrington, giving him 75% of their home if Mrs. Farrington, who was in poor health, died before Mr. Farrington. Bank records showed that Mr. Farrington wrote Mark a check for $35,000 and Justin a check for $21,000, which showed a pattern of him manipulating the elderly in order to gain access to their estate. The house, rightfully so, was eventually returned to Frances Ann, who sold the property in 2011 to Cameron Kinvig, who promised to restore it to its original glory. He purchased the property for $525,200. Cameron says that when he purchased the house, the home had no running water, no working sewer system, had approximately 4,000 square feet of collapsing ceilings, 
original and potentially unsafe electrical, no heat, no air conditioning, no functioning kitchen, no functional bathrooms, and several very large, larger than a basketball, sized holes in various parts of the roof, causing substantial water ingress in almost every portion of the home. Now that next year in 2012, Cameron allows the home to be on the Swiss Avenue Mother's Day home tour where he showcased his plans for renovation and also showcased many of the wall paintings from the ballroom, from the original Maddie Carruth's debutante ball that were able to be saved and shown in their original pre-restored condition. Now, Mr. Kinvig is still the owner of this property, which has only now changed ownership three times in its 105-year history. Okay, ladies, so pull out your pocketbooks. I want to know, would you buy it? Would you rent it? Alana, would you list it? Yes to all, because she didn't die there. Is that is that horrible? No, I don't okay. think that's horrible. <laughs> yes, I totally like would. that that's your decision-making process. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, if I could afford it, uh, after all this renovation that's gone on it, I, uh, I'm i trying to think if I've been in this house or not, because I've definitely been right next to it. We do, if you're ever in Dallas on Mother's Day, every Mother's Day weekend, um, Swiss Avenue does a, a beautiful home tour and we, we walk over there every year. And so I've been into a decent handful of these houses. I don't think I've been into this one. Um, it is kind of on the corner, so it's not in the best location. It, 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 but um, yeah, no, absolutely. If if I could afford it, I would take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You? So from my research, I could only find when it was on home tour in 2012 before okay. it was renovated. Now, I have been occasionally known to be wrong, um, but that's all I could find at the moment. So yeah. unless you went in on that. Time, I mean, I might have. You might have. I mean, I had a two-year-old, so I'm not sure if I... Would have, but no, I mean, we well, used to do that a lot. We would go walk over there um, every Mother's Day. It was kind of like the, the easy Mother's well, Day we've, out. <laughs> we've posted some of the pictures from the home tour on our website so people can go and see what it looks like. And it's, you know, both in its heyday and, you know, right before it was restored. And can we just say like props to Cameron Kinvig? I'm totally going to butcher his name. <laughs> props to Cameron because that is... Like to buy a house that doesn't have working mm-hmm. plumbing and to have that vision and to, you know, have a heart for that kind of restoration, mm-hmm. I think is amazing. It is, it's a hard thing to build a house. It's a hard thing to renovate a house. But when you're doing something, well, Melly, we were talking earlier about, you know, when you're in a designated historic district, it's, you know, you can't just do whatever you want, right? You have to follow the guidelines, you have to get approval. And so, I'm sure the city worked really well with him just wanting it to not be an eyesore anymore, but he definitely had to jump through hoops to get all those renovations approved as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and and if you look at the pictures online of this house, I mean, it is a grand dam. Like it has this amazing double wide um, uh, walkway up to the front of the house with the beautiful steps on it. It, It's pretty amazing. The thing about Swiss Avenue is um, every Halloween, it gets inundated with thousands upon thousands of trick-or-treaters. And, and when we first moved to Munger Place, which is right next to uh, this area, people forewarned us, but we didn't really quite understand. And I remember our first Halloween driving down Swiss and seeing people put out yellow caution tape all around their houses. 
And I was like, thinking to myself, oh, these people are snobs. They don't want all these kids trick-or-treating in front of their houses until I realized what happened. And and it wasn't that they weren't allowing people trick-or-treating. They were actually just wanting them to walk on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. and on their walkway versus, you know, running across their grass. Because when you have three, four plus thousand uh, trick-or-treaters, that can be outrageous. I mean, I know that the worst, most we've ever had was about 3,000 and we're kind of uh, several That's blocks crazy. away. Yeah. Okay. Can I be tacky for a minute? How much money do you spend on Halloween candy every year? Like close to 500 or so. What? That's insane. Yeah. Normally I go to uh, Sam's or Costco and just, I mean, it's crazy. And these aren't neighborhood kids. It's sort of a, you know, everyone kind of busts, you know, kind of busses in. Um, it, it's fun. It's definitely fun. It is crazy. Last year, I made the mistake of waiting. I, I don't know. Was I even texting you? I feel like I might have been te- I was texting everybody. It was Halloween and I made the mistake of waiting to the day of to go look in. Everywhere was out, uh, out. like Costco, Sam's, Walmart, Target. Like I, like I was like buying a few here at CVS. I was buying a few here at like Tom Thumb. I was like going to every, I spent like three hours um, trying to make, um, going to the Dollar Tree, like trying to find uh, a candy to, to be able to handle it. That's crazy. I've never lived on a street where there have been trick-or-treaters. Like, we've always been sort of tucked away. Mm-hmm. But your house is right by an elementary school. It is, but it is, it's, you know, there are only like 10 houses on my street. So, like, bang for your buck. Right. Kids are like, peace out. We'll go over to this other. <laughs> They're good at your neighborhood. <laughs> I think a lot of people do come to our neighborhood because it is so interesting. You are so going to come by next year. It, I mean, it is a lot of fun. My kids have never grown up really wanting to trick-or-treat because my kids have grown up mostly wanting to give out uh, candy. Oh, that's sweet. Because, well, I mean, it's all hands on deck. Nobody comes to the front door because, I mean, you don't have time to come to the com- front door. So we always put a table um, below our steps and with and we have to be like, we have bags and bags of candy and we usually get different people to come or family members to come to help us and we have lots of adult beverages. Uh, bec- but it's like kind of like you're throwing you candy left and right. Halloween plan is for yeah. this year? Yeah. Oh, yes, that's what it, I'm hearing. It, it's a lot of fun to just witness it. One year, um, there was a man out in front and he was taking pictures of our house. And I mean, we were decorated, but I won't say we were amazingly decorated. And I went and talked to him and he was a Japanese tourist. He was in town for uh, work. And so somebody had, uh, he had asked where he wanted to see what Halloween was like. So they sent him to our neighborhood. And so he's taking pictures. I mean, I have these videos where there'll be like 50 people waiting in line for our house. You're probably on like some textbook in Japan (laughs) where they're like, you want to know what Halloween's like in the United States? And it's a picture of your house. And the funny thing is we're not giving like, you know, like big pieces of candy. We're giving like you know, one or two small pieces of candy each more, you know, it, it, it feels cheap until you start seeing all the people coming. But yeah, no, there's definitely a couple doors down from us. You know, we have the lady who lays in the coffin and, you know, and gets out. Then we have other houses on our street that play the, the scary movies on the sheets, but then they have like the dolls, the creepy dolls in there. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely a lot of fun, but it all started because of Swiss Avenue. Swiss Avenue kind of did a uh, neighborhood service event. I've, I've heard stories that dated back to the 80s. And then over the decades, it's expanded to the other historic neighborhoods to come get candy. Yeah, a couple of years ago, we had um, vendors um, set up shop in front of our house. And so they were selling like, you know, the like like you're at a carnival, the glow in the dark um, toys that make different colors oh, right. and cotton candy and things like that. They were selling it 
literally right in front of my house. Wow. That's amazing. Well, you know, let's give a plug for the Swiss Avenue Mother's Day home tour because probably this will be dropped before Mother's Day. <laughs> yes, we yes. hopefully. Um, and if you're interested in this neighborhood that we've been talking about, that is a great way to see some of these really cool and historic houses. So if you're in Dallas on Mother's Day this year or any year because it's an annual event, check out the Swiss Avenue Mother's Day Home Tour. Yeah, they um, normally also have uh, horse-drawn carriages that go up and down Swiss that you can take a ride um, from house to house too. And then they also have um, food and adult beverages for sale Life like music. in the market. It's a fun oh, event. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, a fun lot way of fun. to spend Mother's Day. So, Yay. All right, ladies. I think that's a wrap. Hey, y'all. Thanks for listening and being a part of our Crime Estate family. If you're curious about today's feature Crime Estate, you could find additional photos and details from today's episode online at crimestatepodcast.com or on Facebook and Instagram by following at Crime Estate Podcast. Have a crime estate we should cover? Shoot us an email at crimeestatepodcast at gmail.com. Until next week.